0: Matthew 18, this one's like famous. And in this case, again, uh, your brother is the offender. He's, he's offending you. You're upset. He's sinning against you. He's doing something that's not treating you right, and you're upset about it, and you can't just absorb it. Here's what he says, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, what do you do? Go and tell him his fault, between you and him, listen to the next word alone. This is the word of God. I don't know why, but I've had a lot of experience watching people with this. They're having problems with each other. And everybody always has a reason. Everybody always has an excuse for why they won't do this. I'm not going to go to them because they would this, that, or the other. Jesus doesn't give you any excuses. There's no little footnote here. Unless you have a reason you don't want to, if your brother sins against you and it's you can't just cover it, you're churned up about it, it's damaging the relationship, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Man, if Christians would do this, the church of Jesus Christ would be so much healthier. So many problems will get resolved before they take they go a long time and get worse and worse and worse. And now you're in such a deep hole with that person, you'll never get out of there. You can never fix it. And it's spilled out into other people's lives, and you're never going to fix it. It's to be between you and him alone. Why between you and him alone? Well, one, because you might have it all wrong, and once you meet with them, you figure out, oh, I had that all wrong, but you would have infected six other people with your wrong. And you want to you want to protect. The good name—a good name is is to be desired more than great riches. They have a good name with a lot of people. You don't want to filch their good name, and you want to avoid gossip. You want to protect their reputation. Welcome to Grounded. I'm Steve Hartland, pastor at Cornerstone Community Church in Joppa, Maryland. And our topic for today is biblical principles for resolving interpersonal problems. Not that any of you would ever have interpersonal problems, ha but the biblical principles for resolving them. Um, we're gonna look at two principles and then three key passages. I really wanna impress upon you these three passages are like ones to know. They are really helpful. In fact, they were first impressed upon me back in about 1975 or 76. That was a little ways back. I was a seminary student. Debbie and I were married in 75, and a guy came to speak in my seminary all week long in the chapels uh, on uh, Christian counseling. He was like the father of, he was the guru of Really, really biblical counseling. If you've heard of the CCEF Foundation uh, that goes on today, they're rooted in him. And his name is Jay Adams, and he came out with this book, Competent to Counsel. Bought mine in, I think, 75, came out in 70. And then he came out with this one, The Christian Counselor's Manual. I refer to this not infrequently, because it helps with things. Uh, And he spoke at our school for a week, as I said. I've got lots of his other books, by the way. One of them's even autographed. I thought it was one of these two, but it isn't. It's autographed, and he wrote in it, May He Use You to Help Many. I thought that was pretty cool. So in these two books, Jay Adams really impresses upon us for solving interpersonal problems. There are three key biblical passages, and I want to lay them before you today. I want you to know about them and so on. Here's one of the first principles. Principle number one, you will likely, did I say likely? I should probably say certainly. You will certainly experience interpersonal problems. Unless you're like Mr. Extreme, recluse, introvert, you never even talk to anybody, even then you're probably imagining them in your head and having problems with them. So uh, to be human, fallen human on a fallen planet with fallen people all around you, we all had problems. Like what do we see in the garden? Soon as Adam and Eve sin, what happens next? Adam's blame shifting, the woman that you gave me. He throws Eve under the bus. How do you think she felt about that? Do you think that evening was a romantic candlelight dinner evening for them? I think probably not. I think she was probably upset, and they had to have some discussions about, why are you blaming it on me, you know, before God and all that? He was also blaming God, by the way, so he had problems with God. But you will have problems. You'll likely experience them. And there's a couple of passages I want to mention here that mention here that— have helped me. I mean, seriously, they have really helped me. I am glad they are in Scripture, or I might get disillusioned with like, what's wrong with us? Why can't we be like the first century Christians? No, they had their problems too. So here's passage number one. It's taken from the book of Acts. In chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas, two great guys, powerful leaders, preachers, teachers, and all that in the church in Antioch. And the church decides, the Holy Spirit says, set them apart for a job I've called them to. And they go out on their first missionary journey, and they lead people to Christ and plant churches. Lead people to Christ, baptize them, plant churches. Another city. Lead them to Christ, baptize them, plant churches. So they plant a bunch of churches. Then they come back to Antioch, the church that sent them, and they give a report and all that. Well, a little while later, Paul—here, let me just read it now. Verse 36. I think this is chapter 14. It could be 15, but I think it's 14. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. So let's go back, same loop, visit all the towns, see how they're doing, strengthen them and all that. Now, here's where it gets bad. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark, and they were related. I believe John called Mark was his nephew, And so, you know, he had a heart for him. But maybe temperamentally, too, Barnabas was more inclined to like John Mark. And Paul's not so inclined, because here's what happened. Let me read on. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So it appears like they were in this place called Pamphylia. And right when they really needed John Mark, because he was like their helper, he was their assistant, he carried Paul's briefcase, he set up dinner, he set up the room, he turned on the lights, there weren't any, whatever, uh, he was that guy. And, and right when they really needed him in this place called Pamphylia, John Mark said, uh, guys, and we don't know why, he just said, uh, I'm out of here, I'm not part of this gig anymore, see ya, and he left. Paul was apparently not real happy about that. And so he was not real happy with John Mark, and he didn't want this to be the guy they're going to take out on their second journey when this guy left them high and dry on their first journey. So Paul says, nah, not best to take this guy. He withdrew from us in Pamphylia. He didn't go on to the work. Now, here's where push comes to shove. Verse 39. And there arose a sharp disagreement. Wow. Some of the best Christian leaders on the planet, most godly, spirit-filled, holy men of God, preaching and teaching, planning churches. Holy Spirit sent these guys out to be the very first Christian missionaries ever. And what happened between them? There arose a sharp disagreement. Like, can Christians ever have a sharp disagreement? Like, if we're really spirit-filled, really following Christ, really seeking the will of God, if we're walking with the Savior... Shouldn't it all be, you know, hearts and flowers, we just love each other and get along? Well, that's a nice idea, but we still have this thing that theologians call remaining sin. So yes, we're redeemed. Yes, we have a new heart. Yes, we have the Spirit of God in us. Yes, we have the power of the Word of God to change us, but there's still this thing called remaining sin, like we're not the spirits of just men made perfect yet, So we all get things wrong, we all mess up, and we even struggle just mentally to understand other people. Where are they coming from? Where are you coming from? And so it's interesting to find out the very best Christians on the planet in their very first trip or when they're anticipating their second trip, there arose a sharp disagreement. Take courage. Have you had a sharp disagreement with some other Christian and you're disillusioned? Like, what's going on? We're following Christ. We're in the faith. We both love the Savior. How on earth could we have a sharp disagreement? Is there something wrong with the faith? No, this is par for the course. Even eminent, wonderful, world-class, amazing Christians can have sharp disagreements. So that, what happened as a result of the agreement? So that they separated from each other. Wow. I mean, like, they disagreed so badly about what? Was it over the deity of Christ, the virgin birth, substitute of gender? No, it should we take my cousin along? And Paul was like, no way we're taking him along. And it got so bad that they separated over that. Some of the best Christians on the planet. Take heart when you see Christians not able to figure each other out, not able to resolve a difference, not able to get along together, and they actually wind up separating. Paul and Barnabas did the very thing, and the Spirit of God thought it important To put this in the word for us so we would know these kinds of things do happen to serious followers of jesus christ so they separated from each other barnabas took mark i am taking my cousin with him and sailed away to cyprus but paul chose silas and departed having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the lord and he went through syria and cilicia strengthening the churches so the holy spirit used them both mightily in ministry They went out and did great things in the name of the Lord. They led people to Christ. They planted churches. They strengthened churches. Even though they just had such a sharp disagreement over, do we take my cousin along because he deserted us the first time, and they parted ways. It's discouraging to even consider this because this means, yeah, we're going to have the same thing, isn't it? We're going to experience some of these same things. By the way, a cool like ending to that story is later in life 2 Timothy 4:11 years later Paul writes uh, Luke alone is with me get Mark St Mark and bring him with you for he is very useful to me for ministry cool the guy who'd been the quitter somehow rehabbed himself, rose again in Paul's esteem, and by the end of life, Paul's saying, I want that guy. Bring him. He's useful to me for ministry. Christians can get it back together. Might take some time. There can be reproachment. The Spirit of God can lead us back to understand and appreciate each other. Or this may be an indicate that actually, an indication that actually Paul was kind of right. Mark did need some rehab, and now he's got it, and now he's more reliable, and now he's more dependable. But the point of all this is, even scripture shows us that we will very likely have interpersonal problems with other believers, even if you're a serious, serious, spirit filled, loving Jesus Christ follower of the Savior. Let me just give you a little insight into ministry. One of the hardest parts of ministry, maybe probably the hardest part of ministry, at least in our days when we're not being stoned with stones and left for dead. The hardest part of ministry is interpersonal problems. <laughs> it really is. Here's one other example, just a quick one. Paul writes to two ladies in the church in Philippi, Philippians 4, and in Philippians chapter 4 it says, "I entreat Eodia." So there she's sitting in the church on the day this is read and her eyes wake up. He's talking to me. He's reading my they're reading my name in the church. But yeah, well, hang on, lady. I entreat Iodia, and I entreat Syntyche, and now they both know, "Oh, now, they, because they know they're not getting along, and they're both like, "Oh no, he isn't really." He's 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 talking about us right here in Scripture, right here in the church. Yes, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Well, maybe they were pathetic examples of Christ followers. Maybe they weren't even saved. No, no, he describes them. Yes, I also ask you true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Philippians 4, 2 and 3. It's discouraging. Look what happened. Look how two ladies who have labored side by side with Paul are at a point now where they need to agree. We're not told what they're disagreeing on. It could be something about one of their cousins. (laughs) Who knows? And Paul didn't even reveal what the problem was or how to solve it. He just says, here's the solution, ladies, agree, which maybe meant they had to agree to disagree because it didn't say who's right and who's wrong and what to do about their problem. Sometimes you just have to agree to disagree and love each other anyway. So the point so far is, here's principle number one, you, if you're following Jesus Christ and if you're fellowshipping with other believers and living out and experiencing all the rich and wonderful one another's of the New Testament, you're probably going to run into some problems somewhere. You will experience this. Here's a second principle, and sometimes you can't resolve them. Try as you will, you just can't fix it. You can't figure each other out, can't understand each other, you can't agree. You're both coming from such different places, and sometimes you can't resolve it. This is due, of course, to our fallenness. It's hard for me to understand other people, it's hard for them to understand me. We're all coming from very different places sometimes. It reminds me of these. Have you seen one of these ambiguous images? They're usually black and white, and depending on how you look at it, you might see a vase. Or you might see two faces looking at each other. just depends on how your eyes try to settle on it. You're coming from a different vantage point. Classic examples were a rabbit-duck illusion, uh, a vase that I just mentioned. And there's one where if you look at it one way, it looks like your wife and she's very attractive. If you look at it the other way, it looks like like great-great-great-grandmother and she wasn't. At her most attractive that she'd ever been. So uh, w- what happens? One person looks at a situation and sees one thing and another looks at the same situation. She's an entirely different thing and we can't agree and we can't get along. This is some of the reason why this happens. Maybe some of it's because we have dramatically different personalities that value different things. Even genders value different things. In general, women value and love and want certain things. And men want value, love, certain different things. And so... This doesn't help us. And Scripture tells us sometimes we won't be able to resolve things. Here's two verses about that. Romans 12, 8. If possible. Hmm, isn't that interesting? That's in the Bible. If possible. The Bible saying, look, this might not be possible. If possible, so far as it depends on you. So you're going to have to do all of your part. So far as it depends on you. Live peaceably. With all. Be at peace with everybody, if possible, so far as it depends on you. What's that verse saying? What's the flip side of that verse? It might not be possible, and you might do everything you can possibly do that you can imagine or think of or pray yourself into, and the situation still isn't getting better. So sometimes it depends on other people, and you just can't get it all fixed. Here's another interesting verse about that. This one is a little bit gendered. Don't get me out of me. Proverbs 21 9. It is better to live in a corner of the housetop. They had a flat roof with a parapet around the edges so nobody would fall off and violate the law of Moses. It's better to live in the corner of that housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Wow, now can there be quarrelsome men? Sure, but the Bible chooses the wife here. Better to live in the corner of a housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. Why? Because you're not going to be able to fix things with that quarrelsome wife. She is quarrelsome. That's the problem. And until she changes deep down in her nature and her soul, you have a 100% certain certainty, percent certainty that anytime you try to interact there, it isn't going to work. It's not going to go The likelihood of that going well is just about 0. Why? Because she is a quarrelsome wife. Nobody could live with her and it not be quarrelsome. And so there are quarrelsome people, and maybe the reason you're having a problem is somebody's just apt to quarrel. Won't be reasonable. Anger is all out of control. Emotions are bubbling. Not logical. Not rational. And so on. So uh, let me give you another example of that. I told you two passages. Sorry, I have a third one. This is interesting. You won't see why I chose this one immediately. Give me a chance. Let me explain it to you. First Corinthians seven. Paul's talking about marriage and not marriage. Single, married. Divorce and all that. And then he says, verse 10, to the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. In other words, Jesus himself in his earthly ministry spoke about this. I'm reflecting now what Jesus said. Uh, To the married I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. All right, so don't divorce him. And then he says, but, (laughs) but. If she does, she divorces him anyway, then what should she do? She should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband, similarly, should not divorce his wife. And if he does, the same thing applies, remain unmarried or else be reconciled. So what's the point I'm making here? This shows us that what's supposed to happen in a Christian marriage is you stay married till one of you dies. Or unless one of you violates the covenant by an egregious sin, and then the Lord permits you to, to end the marriage if you want to. But here Paul recognizes that while that's the standard, while that's the case, some Christians sometimes just have such a bad marriage. It's so problematic. It's so much pain. It's so much sorrow. It's so much trouble. They haven't been able to resolve it. They've been the six different Christian counselors, and they wind up against the will of God divorcing they just haven't been able to figure each other out. Sometimes it's not possible. Maybe it's living on, on, you know, on a rooftop or it'd be better to live on the rooftop than with this man or woman who is quarrelsome. So what have I said so far? You will likely experience problems and sometimes, despite your best efforts, you won't be able to resolve them. Okay, what do you do? You have an interpersonal conflict. What do you do? Here are three principles, going back to my Jay Adams books over here, three principles that he noticed, hey, this one, that passage, that one, that one in Scripture, these really guide us. These are like key principles, basic truths for resolving interpersonal problems. So first... You're experiencing an interpersonal problem. Something's gotten sideways. Something's messed up. What do you do? This should be the first thing you try to do. This should be the thing you do probably 99.8% of the time. This should take care of the situation. I'm going to say it this way. The problem, you just cover it with a blanket of love. You cover it with a nice, thick blanket of love. What do I mean by that? First Peter 4.8. Here's the verse. Peter writes, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? How will that help? What will that do? Since love covers a multitude of sins. So a multitude of the sins that are committed against me, I can just just absorb them. I can just be the one to swallow that. I'm not going to make a big fuss about that. I can just get out my big, thick, soft, roomy blanket of love, just toss it right over that. I'm going to love them and be the one to take one for the relationship. I'm going to absorb it, just absorb it and not make a big deal of it to just try and maintain the relationship. I won't blow it all up over that. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins, a multitude. Most of them should end right there. You probably know what I'm saying, right? If you've been living for any time at all, you've been absorbing some things and not making a big deal out of some stuff. That ought to cover 99.8%. How did I come up with that number? I made it up, all right? Here's another verse about that. Proverbs 10:12. Hatred, see the opposite of loving one another earnestly. Hatred stirs up strife. But love covers all offenses. So in most cases, he says all, doesn't really mean all, but but love can cover all. So most situations, you absorb it. You're a big, thick, absorbent paper towel. You're a big, thick blanket, and you take one for the team. You take one for the relationship. You take that problem out of the, ooh, it's an issue category, and you put it into the category of, I've covered it with love, and everything's going to be fine. So that's where most ought to go. That's the first principle. Cover it with love, big, thick blanket of love. But sometimes your blanket's not big enough, and sometimes your blanket's not thick enough, and sometimes you try to throw your blanket over it, but it's on fire under there, and the fire's not going out. And sometimes it's bubbling inside of you and you realize this is one situation, I can't absorb this one. It's gone too far, it's gotten too bad, I can't just take one for the team. This is blowing me up, I'm all wound up about this, I'm all upset, I'm angry, I'm whatever, whatever. I don't even wanna be around them, I don't wanna talk to them. So your blanket of love isn't working in this situation. What do you do next? That's principle number one, that's passage number one, 1 Peter chapter five, four, pardon me, four, eight. Cover it with a blanket of love. Here's the second passage. It's Matthew chapter 5. We're in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking to us in the Sermon on the Mount about an interpersonal relationship problem. And in this passage, you are the offender. They're upset at you. And you realize it. I realize they're mad at me. He's upset at me. She's not happy with me. What should you do? Well, Let me get into the text. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It's not good to go around angry with people. And whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Not good to go around insulting people. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the fire of hell. In other words, these aren't good signs that you're regenerate. If you run around angry, insulting calling people fool. And so here's what it is. So somebody is doing that to you and you realize it because it goes on to say, verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, they're upset at you. They're angry at you. They're insulting you. They're calling you a fool. So you go, oh, I can tell something's wrong here. And you're offering your gift at the altar. In other words, this covers Anything you're doing in life, because nothing could be more sacred and inviolable and uninterruptible than you're in the presence of God offering him your worship and your heart and your gift. It's offering time at church. A lot of people think this is communion time. It's not. It's offering time and you're offering God your gift at the altar, maybe it's a sacrifice that's gonna be offered up, and all of a sudden it comes into your mind. There you remember that your brother has something against you. They're upset at you, they're calling you a fool, they're angry at you, and all that. What are you supposed to do? This is really cool. Verse 24, leave your gift there before the altar. You got a little lamb, you got a bird, you got some money, you're gonna offer it up to God. Just leave it there. This is not the time to be offering gifts to God. This is not to be the time where like I'm all holy, I'm a Christian, I'm really getting with the Lord. No, something's wrong with you and that person and he wants you to just leave the offering, walk out of church, go get with them and try to make it right. And then Jesus gives some more advice. He says, and do it quickly. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser. He's accusing you, he's unhappy with you. Come to terms quickly, like don't let it go a month, two months, three months, six months, nine months. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. Get it figured out before you even get to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So Jesus gives us a principle here, and he says, all right, let's imagine there's an interpersonal problem. You're the person who realizes they're upset at me. What do you do? The thing you do is... Even if you're in the middle of the most holy thing on the planet, you're offering up a sacrifice and a gift to God, it's not the time for sacrifice. Leave it there, go talk to the person, try and be reconciled, do it quickly. That's good. So if somebody's upset at you and you realize it, reach out to them somehow, graciously, kindly, lovingly, gently and say, hey man, I can tell you're kind of upset at me, you called me a fool. <laughs> uh, can we get together and talk? And if they say no, well, the next passage is going to help with that one. And sometimes they do say no. And maybe if they say no, you can just throw a blanket of love over it and say, all right, I can absorb this. Forget it. I'm just going to let it go. But maybe you're too churned up and your blanket's not thick enough and there's fire under the blanket. And so you can't can't just swallow that one. So, again, what did that say? They're upset with you. You go quickly to resolve it. Uh, Ephesians 4, by the way, chimes in on that. Are you angry? Don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your wrath. I don't think that means literally you have to resolve every interpersonal problem before the end of that day, but it means do it fast. Don't let things stretch out and go long and long and long and long because it's not healthy. Uh, why is it important that it's that it's quick? So you don't let it stew, so you don't let it fester, so it doesn't turn into bitterness, so it doesn't spread to all kinds of other people. Paul says these things spread like gangrene. Uh, you don't want that. That's one passage. Here's another passage that helps. We looked at three now, actually. We, we started in First Peter four, covered in a blanket of love. Then we went to Matthew five, they're upset at you. Go quickly, try and resolve it. Now we're in a third passage, Matthew 18. This one's like famous. And in this case, again, uh, your brother is the offender. He's, he's offending you. You're upset. He's sinning against you. He's doing something that's not treating you right, and you're upset about it, and you can't just absorb it. Here's what he says, Matthew 18, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, what do you do? Go and tell him his fault between you and him, listen to the next word, alone. This is the word of God. I don't know why, but I've had a lot of experience watching people with this. And they're having problems with each other, and everybody always has a reason. Everybody always has an excuse for why they won't do this. I'm not going to go to them because they would this, that, or the other. Jesus doesn't give you any excuses. There's no little footnote here. Unless you have a reason you don't want to. If your brother sins against you, and it's you can't just cover it. You're churned up about it. It's damaging the relationship. Go And tell him his fault between you and him alone. Man, if Christians would do this, the church of Jesus Christ would be so much healthier. So many problems would get resolved before they they go a long time and get worse and worse and worse. And now you're in such a deep hole with that person, you'll never get out of there. You can never fix it. And it's spilled out into other people's lives, and you're never going to fix it. It's to be between you and him alone. Why between you and him alone? Well, one, because you might have it all wrong, and once you meet with them, you figure out, oh, I had that all wrong, but you would have infected six other people with your wrong. And you want to you protect the good name. A good name is, is to be desired more than great riches. They have a good name with a lot of people. You don't want to filch their good name, and you want to avoid gossip. You want to protect their reputation. Jesus says, go and tell them. Now, what happens if, if it doesn't work? Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that, and this is a quote from Deuteronomy, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So you've got to have other witnesses. He says, You stole his car. Or you say he stole your car. Take along some witnesses. They say, We saw him steal the car. So I don't think they're just witnesses to the conversation. You need to have witnesses to the wrongdoing. We're trying to establish, was there really a wrongdoing here? You need some witnesses who say, I saw that. I heard that. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now you're in church court. Are you aware of the fact that church has court? Yeah. Paul tells the Corinthians, you should not be going to court out there. You shouldn't be going to court suing one another before unbelievers dragging the name of Christ through the mud out there. How dare you do that? He says, is there not... A wise, one wise person among you who can solve these issues between brothers? And Why would you go to court? Church has its own court. In church, the elders are deemed to be the judges. They have to be impartial judges. There's lots about that in the book of Deuteronomy too. But they're the judges, and we're now in church court. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, he won't submit to the judgment of the elders on this matter. Brother, we think you were wrong. Brother, we think you were wrong and let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What is that? That's church discipline. That's like the ultimate, here's how we deal with that. We believe, the elders say, we believe they're wrong, they're in sin, they won't admit it, they won't agree, they won't fess up to it, and ultimately, that person might need to be removed from the church. That's how serious this can get. So, go to them, between you and them alone. So what are we seeing? First, just try and cover it. Second, we saw in Matthew 5, uh, if they're upset at you, go to them. Go fast. Don't be all holy and spiritual. Leave church if you got to. Don't offer up your offering. Third passage, Matthew 18, they've sinned against you. Go alone, between you and them alone, and try and resolve it at that level. Don't tell anybody else. Well, I'm telling six of my friends so they can pray for me. No. I'm telling six of my friends so I can get advice from them. No. The passage says go between you and them alone. So, we've looked at some principles. we looked at some passages. Now I want to bring us down home stretch with just a few more things. There are some dispositions of heart that, that powerfully help in situations like these, interpersonal problems. Like one great verse is Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. Oh, and into verse 23 as well. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Man, if anything will help solve interpersonal relationships, it's when both parties come with a heart full of that, right? That'd be good. Or Romans 12, verse 3, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Instead of being haughty, if we can just be humble with each other, but to think with sober judgment. Here's what's really going on. It's not just my emotions flying everywhere. Each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. I have a sober assessment of my own abilities or non-abilities to figure this situation out. There's humility, there's the fruit of the spirit. Man, will that help husbands and wives who are struggling. Man, will that help brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling. So, principles and passages to help in interpersonal problems. So by way of closing, let me just say this. I hope you never have to employ any of these steps, but I think I know better. There's 8 billion people on the planet. You're going to bump into a few of them, and it's not going to go well. You're going to have problems with one of them. So I hope your blanket of love is thick and absorbent, and I hope you can go quickly and be reconciled, and sometimes yet we recognize it might have to just wait till the last day. That's it for today. Principles to Help with Interpersonal Relationship Problems. Thanks for joining me. Grind comes out twice a month. And uh, do us a favor, would you? If you're liking these episodes, uh, give us a review and maybe share this with a friend. Thanks for coming today.